how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Thank you for tuning in. This is a very special episode. This is our 150th episode of Creative Principles. Today we're going to be talking to Mike Flanagan, the writer-director of The Haunting of Hill House, and soon the Stephen King story, Dr. Sleep, which is the sequel to The Shining. Fascinated by King, Brian De Palma, and Steven Spielberg, Mike Flanagan grew up making movies with friends. Around the time he got to college, he started making shorts, digital features, and skits until he realized his fascination with the horror genre. As the creator of The Haunting of Hill House, Flanagan wanted to create something unique for the streaming platform Netflix. The description for the 10-episode series reads, Flashing between past and present, fractured family confronts haunting memories of their old home and the terrifying events that drove them from it. In this exclusive interview, Flanagan talks about creating a horror series on the foundation of a family drama, how to weave together complicated narratives, the twists and turns of the series, so yes, there are some spoilers here, the necessity of rewatchability and Easter eggs, what's next for the series in season two, and how he plans to approach Dr. Sleep later this year. The print version of this interview is also available on Creative Screenwriting's website, if you enjoyed this interview, join thousands of viewers on the new YouTube series, also called Creative Principles, which dissects new films, series, and more. You can find us at Creative Principles on Facebook and Instagram. Also visit the website creativeprinciples.live for daily updates. I think the, the movie that did that uh, for me was Jaws, um, which I probably watched a hundred times when I was growing up. Um, I think, yeah, it was Jaws and it was De Palma's Untouchables. Those two movies were kind of the defining movies for me as a, as a kid. Uh, and then in starting in fifth grade, I started making, you know, VHS movies with my friends. The first one we did was a, a our adaptation of The Untouchables. Um, and the second one we did was a, you know, backyard adaptation of Stephen King's It. Um, so I was always kind of flirting with horror. Um you know, when I when I was in college, like a lot of film students, I I started making shorts and then eventually digital features that were really kind of uh, just reflections of what was important to me at the time as a 19 year old. So it was a lot of kind of collegiate dating dramas um, that had no commercial viability whatsoever. Um, and it took me, you know, I made I like to say I made that movie three times before I figured out no one wanted to watch it. And, um, and then moved out to, uh, to California. And the thing that really kind of got everything started for me was a, a horror short, um, which was Oculus. And we did that in 2005. And, uh, 
yeah, I don't know why it took me so long to kind of realize that horror really was the language I, I was best at speaking and was actually the genre I was most interested in. I think I was, I was trying to make a lot of stuff before that, that, you know, felt important to me at the time and kind of important with a capital I that was really, you know, really the musings of a, of a teenager. Well, it seems like you're, you're bringing something kind of new to the, the horror realm. Like, if, if Haunting of Hill House wasn't an adaptation, if we weren't kind of marketing with the idea that we've kind of, we're kind of familiar with that story, how would you describe the overall story? Because so much is happening in this horror series. Well, we, you know, I, I always looked at it as a, as a family drama, first and foremost, that happened to be kind of wrapped in the skin of a, of a ghost story. And one of the comps that we talked about the most in developing the uh, the series was Six Feet Under, which is one of my favorite, all-time favorite TV shows. The The hope was that if we could strip away all of the genre elements from The Haunting, that it would still stand up as a character-driven, effective family drama. Um, that was always the criteria that, that we were operating under. So that, and I think that's I like to think that's the way the genre is used best, that the horror elements are mostly effective when they bolster the human drama and are kind of born of the characters instead of something that the characters are reacting to. So for me, this, this was always a, a dramatic series that just happened to kind of, kind of be wrapped in the trappings of the genre, if that makes sense. What were, what were kind of the first steps? I mean, we're dealing with um, different places in time. We're dealing with uh, seven characters, uh, you know, five main uh, children characters that we see. What was like the first thing pinned to paper? What, what, like what storyline did you kind of plot first? Well, the first thing I did was just identify the siblings. Um, the, the hook of it from, from the pitch was that we were going to do a show about people who had grown up in a haunted house um, but deal with the effects that it had on their lives, you know, all these years later. Um, and that already kind of put us into a place where the focus had to be about the Crane siblings. Um, the first, the first real thread um, that came out of the, the early development of it was Nell's storyline. Uh, Nell was really the focus for me. And in particular, the Nell uh, Bentneck Lady arc. That was the spine of the show from the beginning, and everything else kind of was built from there. Um, but we, we focused primarily on the, the present-day storyline with the siblings, and once that was done, we went back and started to play with the past, and then the challenge was about weaving those together, uh, which had been a trick that I'd started to play with in, uh, in Oculus um, back in 2012, uh, and had felt like it was it was really fun to juggle and braid those two timelines, um, but that there wasn't nearly enough time, given you know that it was a feature. Uh, there wasn't nearly enough time to explore it as much as I'd wanted to. So uh, this seemed like the perfect opportunity to do that. Well, I'll assume everyone has seen it by now, and we, we can put something about spoilers. But um, when did you kind of know? Was, was there any fight as far as explaining the bent neck lady? kind of mid-series versus the very end or later in the in the series? Is there any kind of, um, did you know you were going to have an, an equally powerful uh, ending versus holding that kind of twist off till later? It was always meant to be the midpoint twist. Um, and I remember in the early pitches, when we'd get to that point, you know, it was one of the most exciting 
ideas to put on the table for uh, for the studio and um, and for Netflix. Um, I knew that if we did it at midpoint, we'd need to have another uh, reveal in the final episode. That would need to have as much weight. Uh, we didn't know what it was, though, until the writer's room came together. And I think it was the second day of the writer's room, we hit on the, uh, the red room twist. And between the two of them, I felt like we were, we were covered. Uh, but yeah, Ben Neck Lady was always meant to be midpoint because I felt like there would be a whole, you know, the, the, the buildup leading up to the reveal, every time she appeared on screen, it threatened to give away the, give away the twist. I felt like we could only get away with it for so long. And once we knew the truth, I really wanted time to be able to let that sink in and to deal with the character uh, and the tragedy of that reveal, you know, for as much time as we'd spent setting it up. So it was always, it seemed like the perfect thing for right in the middle. Um, but yeah, we didn't, we didn't know what the, uh, the other twist was going to be until we got the writers together. Uh, to kind of, to kind of um, take another step with that. Did you kind of see, um, I guess some more freedom knowing that if you do kill a character, there's always a possibility of there, you know, a ghost version of that character. Do you kind of write like multiple perspectives in that regard when you thought about these characters? Oh yeah. Uh, the, the beautiful thing about a ghost story is that, you know, you can bring a character back at any time. Uh, the other thing was that this always kind of felt like a contained single season for these particular characters. Um, so there wasn't a hesitation to kill them based on, you know, what if it, what if the show continues? Uh, we always kind of knew this story would be over in 10. Um, so yeah, it, it's uh, something I've, I love about shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, that would kind of frequently kill characters and kind of who stayed dead, you know, mattered quite a bit. The show had the freedom because of the supernatural, you know, uh, crux of it to bring people back in different forms or to resurrect them entirely. Uh, but it made decisions when they did really let a character go that made them, you know, the impact was felt so much more. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's far less frightening to imagine killing a character if you know that, that they can be a ghost in the next episode. But, um, yeah. Can you kind of, um, I know with, with this series, but also with some, some of your other work, you kind of work as a writer, editor, and director. How does that process work for you? Like how much time are you spending kind of in each station or do you view it as just, you know, one person kind of helping oversee every part of the, the film or series? Well, I, I started my career as an editor. Um, that was how I made my living before, you know, people would trust me <laughs> enough to, to make a movie. Um, so I'm actually the most at home at an avid uh, and working in media composer. I, I've always believed that that's where the movie or the episode in this case, you know, really becomes what it's meant to be. You know, editing is, I think, the battleground on which the the ultimate, you know, product that's going to be released. I mean, it's, it's all thought and editorial. And so for me, every other step that I take <clears throat> when I sit down to write or when I'm on set, you know, uh, coming up with how to approach a scene, I'm only thinking about the edit. And I'm only thinking about what that version of me is going to <laughs> is going to say once I sit down with the footage, you know. And at that point, all of the other voices, all of the other pressure, um, what time it is in the in the shoot day, whether we're over or under budget, all of that doesn't matter when I sit at the Avid. Uh, the only thing that matters is the footage that's in my bin, 
and how I can build the scene. Um, so I think editing more than anything informs everything else that I do. Um, and it changes the way I write on the page. It changes the kind of, uh, the kinds of scenes I'll create. It affects where I stage scenes, um, geographically within a story. Um, it completely affects how I approach, um, my shot listing process and, uh, and my, my scene breakdowns on set. Um, and it, it changes how I deal with actors because I'm, I'm thinking entirely about the edit uh, that'll, that'll be required to build the performance I want. I'm not trying to get options. I'm trying to get just what I need to build what I know I want to make. Um, so, you know, I, I'm very, I'm in love with each of those hats that I have to wear. And I'm, I'm kind of fully immersed in, in each stage of it. But more than anything, it's, it's about the edit for me. Well, it sounds like your that process would you know, change your writing process a bit, just to have all those details there, and then storyboarding and everything else. What is that kind of? Are you just literally storyboarding? Do you do anything different to kind of help you see the scene in your mind, or do you sketch out uh, any more details like that about your prep? Well, yeah, I worked with the same director of photography for most of my career, uh, Michael Fuminiari, and we developed a system. Um, for our shot lists in prep that's kind of been refined over the course of you know, six movies in a show now uh, together. And what we basically do is, is start by breaking down the scene into, uh, into emotional beats. Um, we'll do overhead diagrams of the physical space. Uh, we'll do rough blocking for the actors and blocking for the camera. And we'll draw that out as overheads. We'll uh, then take that list of shots do previs where necessary or do storyboards or sketches if there's something specific that we can't communicate just by describing the shot. Um, and then every day on set, uh, the crew is given, um, is given the overheads and the shot list, and we display um, an overhead diagram of the scene with every actor and camera position uh, on the set for everyone to look at. And for some actors, that can be a bit intimidating because they'll – feel like a lot of decisions are already made for them, but we, we view it as scaffolding, you know, that if we've prepared that specifically, that's what gives us the room to make changes uh, and discoveries on the day. But it's a very, very meticulous and very detailed prep that we do. The, the one thing I can never kind of understand, and a lot of this comes from the editorial uh, training, I think, is the idea of approaching a set, showing up, you know, showing up for work, and saying, okay, what are we going to do? Um, I feel like that just generates footage, and that just kicks the can down the road uh, to to me in, in post-production, where sitting at the Abbott, I'm going to have to start from scratch, and I'll have way less options. If, you know, more footage for me just means less options. <laughs> it's, it, it's, uh, it's kind of approaching a problem with a shotgun instead of a scalpel. And... Um, so yeah, our, our, our production prep work is incredibly, incredibly detailed, um, and, and really difficult to put together, but I, I think it's a system that, that works really well for us. And we're almost never in a position of having to ad lib or find a scene on the day or worst case scenario, find a scene and post, you know, it's just not the way I'm comfortable working. 
I, I would assume that equals to kind of a, a tight uh, shooting schedule as well. Does that kind of help you get everything you need, um, or do you you still find yourself crunched for time on occasions? I'm always crunched for time, just because we're always you know trying to bite off a little more than we can chew. Um, it all goes back to my days doing indie films where you know we didn't have time, and so I would have to just make a very specific list of what I needed in order to tell the story the way I wanted to. Um, that still carries over into this, you know, into this world where we do have more money, but there's never enough money, and we have more time, but there's never enough time. You know, uh, it it really helps make sure that in the time frames and in the limitations that are kind of natural to the business that are that we're dealing with that everyone else is dealing with too, uh, it means that we can have a cinematic project uh, product. It, it means that it can be more precise and and more thought out and and a little less improvised i think talk to some you know some non uh netflix writers and directors and it, it seems like um you know some people kind of think negatively of making things for the tv versus the silver screen even though that's the way things are going these days but it seems like with so many details you kind of demand you know people's attention how can you uh, talk a little bit about rewatchability i know people have seen like the you know the ghosts in the backgrounds and random scenes and the et uh, tribute there and things like that. What are some of those? Uh, is that just an ongoing process that you're trying to put in the scripts or the work as far as uh, making it where they, this is probably something people watch every year, every year at Halloween or something like that. Is that something you were thinking? Oh, oh absolutely. And there, there are certain shows that I revisit as appointment television that I watch over and over again. Uh, that's something I always wanted the show to be. And we're in this kind of very fortunate position because of Netflix in that we could write all of the scripts before we started shooting. Um, we didn't have to just do a pilot and kind of, you know, keep the scripts coming as we were already in production. We, we got to really see the whole series as a whole before we went into production, which meant that we could, in the writing, plant all sorts of stuff that we knew would be exciting on the second viewing. You know, that, that was a luxury that we had uh, that a lot of people don't have. Um, and then little tricks like the, the background ghosts, which um, was also baked into our pitch, you know, were, were just additional ways to kind of play with the tone of the show, but also encourage repeat viewing. Um, we figured that if we, if we had enough callbacks in the writing, if we had enough moments that could be interpreted more than one way, uh, that would be richer on a rewatch. And then we had something, you know, the ghosts are like candy, you know, they, they, very effortlessly kind of encourage a, a rewatch because people want to see the scary ghost they missed. Um, you know, that's, that's the easy way in, but then we had to kind of make sure that the story was complex enough as well, that there would be something for them to find outside of just a scary face, you know, but yeah, uh, that's a very intentional thing and, and something that we developed very closely with Netflix specifically because they have all that, you know, internal data about which shows are binged and watched more than once and how many episodes people power down at once, you know, the, the science of it is pretty fascinating. So once you kind of see the landscape, it's, it's really exciting to go, okay, well, how do we, how do we play within that box? And that creates creative opportunities. I think, you know, feature films just don't have, I think television's far more exciting right now. Have your fans, I mean, you don't have to give any details, but have your fa fans found everything or there's still some like really obscure horror references you know that most people won't ever see? Oh, there's still just a, a tiny handful um, that I don't think anyone will find. 
and there were a few we put in there kind of intentionally feeling like, look, we have to, we have to put in something so small that if anybody ever finds it, we'll know that we've done everything we can, you know, <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, most of the, of the background ghosts, uh, in fact, I think maybe all but one of the background ghosts have been found at this point, but we always try to keep a little something in there that would be so hard that, you know, <laughs> that maybe no one will ever find it. Uh, we're taking a similar approach to season two. And the problem is now everybody's looking for it. So season two has become even more challenging, but it's, it's going to be fun. So at what point in the writing process did you know you were going to alter and mix timelines uh, specifically to explain what was kind of going on in the red room? Was that something from the very beginning? Well, the, the timelines being braided and, and being you know, drastically nonlinear was, was baked into the pitch for it. That was always part of the concept of the structure of the show. Specific to the Red Room, though, uh, we didn't know that the Red Room was going to require us to kind of go back and reframe a lot of these scenes until it was the second day of the writer's room that we, that we came up with that. And what that did was really break open a bunch of scenes in those first nine hours that allowed for us to look at them and say, wow, if you watch this a second time, knowing this truth about the Red Room, it changes all of these other scenes behind it. And that's the kind of stuff you really want to find in a series like this. You want the, the series to be just as interesting structurally moving forward as it is moving backwards, uh, which is a, you know, an abstract thing to play with in a writer's room. But I think for how that translates to a viewer is that they're kind of guaranteed a different second viewing experience. And what we tried to do was set everybody up for that in little pieces by taking scenes like um, Luke breaking into Steven's apartment. And a few episodes later, after, the, after you first see that scene in the pilot, showing that scene again, unchanged, but with a little more context to kind of show that the assumptions we've made about that scene were wrong. And that even showing the same moment again with this new information changes everything. And that theme, that approach to these scenes, you know, uh, that carries over the entire series, mostly thanks to the Red Room. Um, that, that was the hope that we could kind of plant that little seed in something as small as one scene, but that it would apply, you know, as well to something as large as the whole series. And, and I'm hoping that people feel, feel that same feeling when they revisit the show, which a lot of people do. And that, that makes me very happy. Did you feel kind of an obligation to explain, you know, nearly everything that happens and kind of wrap it up neatly at the end? Not so much in the explanation, you know, we, we actually left a handful of questions that I, I didn't think needed to be answered. Um, you know, the ending we knew would be polarizing because the choice was either to go with a, a pessimistic kind of more traditional horror ending, a lot of which are open-ended, um, or something that at least resolved the central emotional conflict for these characters. And our decision was to, to try to end on a note of, of hope and peace that the characters had been through so much over the course of the series and we had been through so much with them that all of us were really hungry for that. Um, you know, even knowing that that isn't really the language that the genre often uses, you know, it, it, it's a cynical genre at times and, and a cynical world. So it was, it was a nice opportunity for us to not be cynical for just a few minutes. Um, you know, we, we didn't, I, I, I do think explanation is the natural enemy of tension within the genre, um, that 
you you need to understand the rules of of the supernatural forces, but understanding everything about them demystifies them and, and kind of takes away a lot of their effect. You know, the most obvious example of that in my work before this was it was important to know the history of the mirror and Oculus, but not its origin, you know? And with Hill House, it was important to know about the ghosts and how the house worked, but also very important to never try to say why it worked that way. I I never felt like there was an answer we could come up with that would do anything but kind of hurt its sense of mystery and tension um, and work against the allegories that we were playing with. So yeah, there there was no external pressure to wrap up the show the way we did. Um, it was a it was a tough tightrope to walk, but we wrapped it up the way we felt in the room was appropriate. Did you say you're working on season two now? That's right. I mean, I'm actually in the writers' room right now. I'm sure you can't give away details, but um, what are some of the responsibilities you feel for this you know this second season based on the the great fan response from the first season? Well, it's. Uh, you know, we want to try to give people more of what what we think worked. Um, you know, and based on on whatever kind of understanding we can come up with about what what worked about it. Um, it's an, it's a really wonderful thing for us because we get to hit this big reset button. You know, we're we're not revisiting Hill House. We're not revisiting any of the characters from the first season. We really get to start over. And deal with the things that made the show special to us was that, you know, it was about haunted people and haunted places. And this will be new haunted people in the new haunted place to us. Um, but will give us a chance to, you know, to go from scratch and to, and to get to know a whole new group of people, the way, the way our lives, you know, haunt us, the way our traumas haunt us, which is really what the show is about. Um, it's freeing not to have to, take so much of the resolution we worked so hard for uh, for those characters in season one and then unravel it intentionally so that they have something to do in season two, you know? Um, it's really a relief for me to kind of let them, let those characters go off into their, into their quiet kind of private fates and, and to start over. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly exciting. I think you know, there's there are certain expectations that are unavoidable based on the first season, um, but we also have an opportunity to really surprise people, and I don't think we would have had that uh, if we were trying to continue the same story. Is there any advice you ha- you wish you had in the beginning, maybe before this series, before Oculus, or any advice you'd like to pass on to future writers and directors? That's a great question. I think... I mean, if I could go way back, if I could look at myself when I first really started to make those digital features I made in in college, um, the advice I would give myself would be, yes, tell a story that that is important to you, that has meaning to you, um, for sure. But try to make sure that you deliver that story. um, Deliver that story in a way that will have meaning to people, you know, people so far outside of you. I don't try to narrow your vision so something is so personal that it's inaccessible to others. And um, one of the best ways to do that and to make sure that, that you're able to connect with a wider audience is to tell your personal stories kind of wrapped in the, wrapped in the cloak of a universal and popular genre. Um, 
in the cloak of a popular entertainment lean into the requirements and the tropes of that genre and what make it so popular and let you know the devil be in the details let the personal story that you're telling you know be be nice and nestled within that um, as opposed to trying to you know <laughs> trying to change the world uh, with with a story that is so specifically personal it it can't find an audience um, I think that's that's what I would tell myself. I'd also tell myself never go into debt uh, to make to make an independent film. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, last question. I'm, I'm sure it's probably a, a no comment. Can you say anything about um, Doctor Sleep that's coming out later? Oh, I can do better than no comment. I can't say much, um, but I can do better than that. Um, it has been one of the kind of most singularly exciting movies I've gotten to work on in my whole career. Um, and I, I fell in love with the horror genre because of Stephen King. Um, I took this movie about as seriously um, as I've ever taken anything in my life, as far as the responsibility, you know, not only to, uh, to King's universe, but to the cultural importance of, of The Shining. Um, and I am incredibly excited and proud of, of what we made, and I can't wait for people to get to see more of it. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. If this was your first time, please go on to iTunes or SoundCloud, give us a rating, make sure you subscribe to stay tuned for future episodes. Also, check out our website at creativeprinciples.live. We will be updating daily new podcasts, new videos from our YouTube series, more information about the intersection of creativity and productivity. And as always, thanks for listening.